0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. C.C. Pecknold, Associate Professor of Theology at Catholic University of America, giving a talk entitled, Sacrifice and the City of God. Dr. Pecknold's talk was part of the Theology Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. What Dr. Wood failed to mention was that um, I'm here uh, primarily because uh, uh, he uh, was my star student and uh, you have the good fortune to have uh, really one of the most extraordinary theologians uh, that I've ever taught. So uh, you make sure you take a class from Jacob Wood. Um, Thanks very much for having me. How many of you guys have these? they should exhaust you sometimes. um, That I'm gonna turn mine off because here we have an hour to rest in thought. So would you join me in turning yours off? I'm gonna turn mine off. We're just gonna have an hour of thought. It's a beautiful thing to have an hour of thought together. Um, And the, the thought that I have is to think about the topic of sacrifice. Now, before, We get too deep into Augustine. I just want to think about sacrifice with you for a minute as a concept. Um, Can anyone tell me what sacrifice means in our contemporary society? Just one word, two word answers, quick things. Yeah. Giving something up. Yeah. Anyone else? Willing willing victims. (laughs) Sacrificing your pride to say something. Suffering. Suffering. What does does the American public think sacrifice is? These things? Uh, Today I read in the paper about Brittany Maynard. Do you know who Brittany Maynard is? 29-year-old woman uh, suffering from uh, terminal brain cancer uh, and she committed suicide over this weekend, uh, tragically. She sacrificed her life, self-sacrifice, right? What was that sacrifice ordered to? In the press it seems um, that it is being lauded as an expression of the virtue of fortitude, right? I saw USA Today said that this advanced the conversation. There's a sacrifice here in which people are attributing to her suicide a virtue known as fortitude. Now compare that sacrifice to a woman who gives birth to her child knowing that doing so might kill her. That's a different kind of sacrifice still. Then think about the smaller sacrifices that you make on a daily basis or that your families make on a daily basis. Think about the sacrifices that your parents have made for you to be here at this fine university. What about the sacrifices that the church asks people to make? What sort of sacrifices are those? What is the order and nature of sacrifice? What does it mean? And so I return to this ancient text, St. Augustine's City of God. It's big and intimidating. Scares my students when I assign it. To understand why sacrifice is an important topic for Augustine's City of God, has been a bit of a passion of mine. As I've taught it over the years, I've continually looked for what the coherent structure of the city of God is. How does it all hang together? And I keep coming back to the topic of sacrifice, and so bear with me for a while here to tell you why I think sacrifice is so important for Augustine and why I think that matters for us today too. Sacrifice was Augustine's central um, theme in his response to the question of suffering. Rome had been attacked in 410 by Visigoths. It it was a, a moment of realization that Rome was not an eternal city, that Rome was vulnerable. And Romans, in the wake of these attacks, feared that Rome had been weakened by Christianity, that Christianity in some sense was the weakening of Rome and therefore the cause of Rome's suffering in a roundabout way. Now, by responding to these charges, he's in one sense an apologist defending the church in Rome, but in another sense he's also a shepherd, a pastor responding to the suffering of Romans who are looking for a scapegoat as it were. The city of God, it should not be forgotten, is a pastoral response to tragedy in Roman life. While the Visigoths had not destroyed the infrastructure of the city of Rome, they killed, maimed, and raped innocent human beings. Augustine was responding thus not only to the charge that Christianity was to blame, but also to the deeper questions that Romans were asking. How can we understand this suffering? How can we understand our sacrifices? And this is a truly more important question than figuring out who is to blame for Rome's fall. For this is a question that all humans have always asked and will always ask. I want to argue that it's the central question of the city of God, and this is mildly controversial in contemporary terms because the interpretation of Augustine's City has tended to say that the concept of justice is the central theme. Or perhaps the two cities is the central theme. Perhaps in question time we can come back to think of why I connect the sacrifice both to justice and to the two cities, but permit me to make my positive case. It's a structural argument first. To demonstrate my sacrificial reading, I want to focus on just three out of the 22 books, so we don't have to be here all day. Uh, My selections, I think, are partly for the sake of economy, but also because they say something important about the structure of the book itself aware that Augustine's own training as a professor of rhetoric provided him with ample skill in structuring his work. Augustine tells us that one can look at the structure of the city in a couple of different ways. He says that we can read it in two parts, the first half, books one through 10, and uh, dealing with the two cities in Rome, and then the second half, books 11 through 22, dealing with the two cities in the biblical and ecclesial histories. He also tells us that we can further divide the first part into the temporal and eternal benefits that Rome, Rome's gods do not bring to Rome, the eternal and temporal benefits, uh, and further divide the second part into the origins, histories, and destinies of the two cities. This would give us a grand total of five parts, so that's all to say Augustine thinks a lot about. The divisions uh, of his work. There's also a way in which the threefold division that he gives in the second part, origins, histories, destinies, can be seen to cover the work as a whole, not as origins, histories, and destinies so much as quite simply beginning, middle, and end uh, for an unspoken clue about how things hang together around the concept of sacrifice, and so I want to focus our attention on book one, book 10, and book 22, beginning, middle, end. Here I find Augustine reflecting in book one on living responses to a real suffering, the fall of Rome and the sacrifices attached to it, both pagan and Christian. And then in book 10, to reflect with Augustine on Christ's sacrifice, and in book 22, on the importance of the Eucharist as sacrifice and the conformity of saints and martyrs to this end." All right, so now, introductions aside, we're going to do a three-act play, and the three acts are uh, these books 1, 10, and 22. So Act 1, Augustine begins the city by stating that he aims to demonstrate the excellence of humility to the proud. Here we get an important indication of what Augustine's pastoral advice to his Roman readers will be. The pride of Rome has been wounded by a great fall and by great personal sacrifices. They are now pointing, the Romans that is, are pointing their bloodied fingers at Christianity, Catholicism, and Augustine means to deepen their reflection on this suffering and the virtues required to endure suffering, importantly to make sense of sacrifice. Let me highlight two examples then from book one that Augustine takes from Roman history, which give Augustine an opportunity to assess how Romans at their best dealt with suffering. Exemplars that Romans themselves lift up and say, hey, these people in our history, they're exemplars of how you deal with suffering in our culture and how you respond to that suffering. Lucretia, and Regulus are the two examples that he highlights and I want to highlight. Lucretia. In in the structural middle of book one, I like paying attention to structure, the middle of book one is a discussion of famous suicides in Roman history, and in the first place is the suicide of a woman named Lucretia. Not the same story as Brittany Maynard, but you might see some analogies. Returning to Rome's founding myths, Augustine recalled the story of Lucretia and her virtue of honor as the highest of all Roman virtues. Lucretia, you'll recall, embodied Roman virtue precisely because she took her life rather than to suffer dishonor. Indeed, Augustine cited many examples of this tendency in Roman history. The example of many a brave general who did the same rather than face the shame of defeat, but no example could have been as powerful and as fundamental as the example of this woman Lucretia, because it was her suicide which gave rise to Rome's freedom. It's her suicide that immediately precedes the rise of the Roman Republic, the glory of Roman freedom and honor. Augustine asked his readers though, what sort of virtue brought self-destruction? Um, Lucretia was, was raped and to defend her honor, she kills herself, but she had done no wrong. She commits suicide because her culture admired this as an act of defense of their highest virtue, honor. What sort of confused culture, Augustine asked, could Increase, would increase injustice in order to defend honor, though. What justice is done by suicide? His critique began not only by stating how irrational the act of suicide is, but also by pointing out that even on Rome's own terms, it should be considered illegal. Indeed, Augustine was the first Western thinker to argue that suicide was irrational and immoral and against the law because You could only uh, assign capital punishment by a jury. The legal argument must have puzzled his reader Roman readers most as he argued that the suicide unwittingly was against a Roman law that declared executing a criminal without trial is punishable, is was a punishable offense. Thus executing a chaste and innocent woman could make no legal sense whatsoever. But this is exactly what Lucretia did, and this is exactly what Romans admired. She assigned herself a punishment for a crime she did not commit. That highly extolled Lucretia, Augustine writes, also did away with innocent, chaste, outraged Lucretia. Furthermore, Augustine questions what sort of virtue and what sort of strength leads to self-destruction? He intimated that Rome's most highly prized virtues, even its great foundation myths, were flawed at the core. Augustine argues that not only are Rome's virtues flawed, but that the Christian virtue of humility is the reason why Christian women, who were also raped during the sack of Rome, did not commit suicide. Augustine did not have in mind the modern notion of humility as some rhetorical strategy or attitude, potentially a disingenuous false humility, but he demonstrated the excellence of humility as a kind of habit that Christians practiced in the face of suffering. For where Lucretia's honor, this so-called virtue of honor, led to her self-destruction, Christian humility led Christian women to endure suffering in a way that conformed them more closely to Christ's crucified and his sacrifice. The implication was that Christian women were stronger than Roman women. Against the charge that Christianity had weakened Rome, Augustine saying, hardly. Christian humility does something like the opposite of what you think. Christian women were stronger than Roman w- women and Augustine clearly saw in examples like Lucretia not only the failure of the Roman interpretation of their virtues, but also how the Roman understanding of the virtues could lead to the self-destruction of Rome herself. To put the sharpest point to his ethical critique, Augustine argued that it was Rome's own understanding of the virtues that led to self-destruction from within. Further, just as it was irrational for Lucretia to self-destruct, for the sake of Rome's virtues of honor, pride, and glory, so it is irrational for Rome to defend these virtues against Christianity. Not only have such interpretations of the virtues not saved Rome, they seem to do her nothing but harm. The second example from book one is the example of Regulus. Now many people look to Lucretia and say, see, Augustine doesn't think that any natural virtues, any acquired virtues in Thomas Aquinas' terms, any any, uh, virtues that one would have apart from Christianity are real virtues, that they're just splendid vices. So people look to Lucretia and they say, see, Augustine doesn't think that you can be virtuous without the gospel. That's not quite true because his next example, well his next example is Cato, but the next example after that is Regulus. Regulus is a very interesting example while Lucretia seems to serve as an example of Rome's splendid vices That is Lucretia's virtue wasn't really a virtuous response to suffering But was a vicious response one which actually deprived Lucretia of the goodness of herself The the virtue of honor being practiced here was self-destructive Etc. But he then provides these examples like Cato who's more like Lucretia and Regulus who's not Um, Augustine saw Regulus's natural virtue in much more positive terms, why? Well, Marcus Regulus was a greatly admired statesman in Roman history and a military general uh, and, and um, he, he had led the Roman army to great victories, he led the uh, uh, in the First Punic War, he led a victory over the Carthaginians uh, who were threatening Roman peace Um, But a year later, after his great win in the First Punic War, he lost a battle and was taken captive by the Carthaginians uh, as a prisoner of war. And so uh, the Carthaginians struck a deal with Regulus, and they said, um, we're going to release you on something like parole in order for you to go back to Rome and argue in the Senate for a a truce, a a peace treaty. In order to let him go, the Carthaginians made him swear an oath, and they made him swear an oath to the gods, uh, that if he failed to negotiate such a peace, he would have to return to his enemy as a prisoner, presumably to be tortured to death. He did return to the Senate, he did go on parole, and did return to the Senate to negotiate a peace, but instead of trying to get the Senate to negotiate this peace, which would have preserved his life, he told the Senate, don't cut a deal. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Augustine admires this. He admires this. Why does he admire this? Regulus knows full well that not to achieve peace would be costly to himself. It would be a sacrifice, but it's for the common good. It is in pursuant of the good. Against the strong appeals of Romans, for him to commit suicide rather than go back, they know if he goes back, they're going to torture him and kill him. So they all tell him, commit suicide, and that'll be easier than what you have to face. You're going to face a terrible death if you go back to the Carthaginians, and uh, Regulus doesn't do that. He, he goes to the Carthaginians, um, Augustine tells us that, quote, he returned without hesitation to his enemy. Uh, he chose to let his life be ended by any kind of torture rather than die by his own hand. And by this choice, he put beyond any doubt that suicide was, in his judgment, a serious crime." Quote. And then Augustine adds his profound admiration for pagan Regulus. Quote, "...among all their heroes, men worthy of honor and renowned for virtue, the Romans have none greater produced than Regulus. Both Lucretia and Regulus were models of Roman civic virtue and Augustine's making distinctions between them. So why does Augustine prefer the exemplarity of one over the other? One acts falsely for the true virtue of honor, but the other acts truly for the virtue of fortitude. This is an important distinction often missed in, for example, in Protestant accounts of virtue in Augustine. Regulus is admirable, noble, and worthy of fortitude ordered to the right ends. Instead, preserving some supposed personal honor as with Lucretia, Regulus demonstrates the virtue of fortitude ordered to the common good of the earthly city, and also in obedience to the gods to whom he swore an oath. Augustine writes, quote, the gods they worshipped were false. No argument from Augustine there. But their worship was genuine, and they faithfully kept their oaths, unquote. That is to say Augustine doesn't think that Regulus is admirable for worshipping false gods. Um, he doesn't think Regulus um, is worshipping the one true God, but nevertheless he admires that he has related his virtue to an extrinsic end, an end beyond himself. To say their worship was genuine is not to say that they were directing their worship properly, but that they knew their worship needed to be directed beyond themselves, which is to say he admires that a figure like Regulus knows that virtue is tied to sacrifice and sacrifice is tied to uniting ourselves to that which is eternal, and that's worship. Augustine praises Regulus's virtue to show his Roman reader that the most virtuous response to suffering is intimately intimately bound to our potential to obey God. That is to say that it's tied to questions of religio, those acts which bind us to God or the gods. Of course, that means he will still need to convince them of the one true God. But he doesn't immediately turn to an argument for God's existence or for his simplicity. In contrast to both his treatment of Lucretia and Regulus, his concluding move in the first book is to lift up Christian women as superior examples and exemplars of virtue, precisely because they model the excellence of humility, obedience, and trust in divine providence. Quote, Christians worship the true God and they yearn for the heavenly country, Augustine writes. This gives them a much greater fortitude, he says, not to commit suicide in the face of suffering, but to endure even the most humiliating forms of persecution. And at this point, it seems that he turns to speak to the Christian readers directly. He writes, therefore, faithful Christians, do not think a life Do not think life a burden because your enemies make a mockery of your chastity. Do not think life a burden because your enemies make a mockery of your chastity." Sound familiar today? He even has in mind some Christian women who may have been raped in the sack of Rome, but praises them for their superior endurance to these pagan women and their trust in the healing providence of God, who will judge the violence done to them, but also raise them back up by the virtue of chastity and a purity which he himself will bestow upon them. Such exemplary Christian women provide, in my view, a kind of Marian exemplar for all of Rome to see. Here is a new exemplar for Rome to admire, Christian women whose humility, faith, and obedience to God brings a new kind of strength and power to Rome. It's this greatness of humility that endures suffering. A humility that enables the Christian to endure even humiliating persecution, torture, even to the point of martyrdom. Because the Christian is ordered What? To the one true sacrifice. This is why Christians cannot offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. Some early Christians were confused about this. And why Rome should not want to return to the sacrifices of Rome's gods either. Turning to the one true God will assist Romans, helping them to attain the moral qualities needed for a republic in a much higher way. But this leaves us with the question of sacrifice still hanging as it were, in midair. So let's fast forward now from book one to the middle, right about there. Book 10, the true and perfect sacrifice. By the time we reach book 10, which is the last book of the first half and thus represents a kind of conclusion, we see that the sacrifice theme has been well planned for. Books six through 10 especially had turned to the question of Rome's gods and the sacrifices they required, but now Augustine asked, why worship the gods with sacrifice? They don't seem to bring us any happiness in this life, nor is it clear that they could bring us happiness in the next. Now the Platonists, I think they're a little bit better. The Platonists, they understood that true happiness could only be conferred upon us by God. And so by this time in the argument, Augustine commends the Platonic philosophical monotheism. Platonists know that worship is about being united to the source of our happiness, moving from this world of change to union with the supreme and changeless one. And so the fundamental question we must ask is, how do we get attached to this God? How do we get attached, united, religio, attaches us. Now, the beings who the philosophers have called gods have been one way in which the Platonists thought we got attached through these mediating agents. Augustine says that Scripture calls these platonic gods or daimons domin- dominations, principalities, and powers, as Paul has it in Ephesians 6.5. And he states that these powers are further divided by Christians into demons and angels, angelic natures, which can be good or evil. And so he asks, do we render worship to these powers, to angels, to demons, or to God alone, whom they also must worship? He sees a certain truth to platonic natural religion. The gods are a sort of deviation from the cult of the angels. And their recognition of the one God beyond all gods is seen as a vague, but roughly on target recognition of the need to worship the one true God. What that leaves him with is a set of questions about the kind of religion or religio and devotion, the kind of ceremony and sacrifice, the kind of worship that we owe to God. Regulus knew that we owed this worship to the gods, The Platonists knew that we owed this worship to the god of gods, but what is the truth of the matter? Augustine says worship couldn't be owed to men, and worship couldn't be owed to the gods, and worship is not owed to angels or certainly not demons. Augustine says worship is due only to God. What is the worship that we owe to God? Worship involves more than adoration, homage, and veneration. Worship, he says, involves sacrifice. But what good are sacrifices to God? He couldn't need them because God doesn't need anything. God's perfect in himself, lacking nothing. It seems like he's ready to tell us that sacrifices don't matter, that God doesn't need them, and that we shouldn't be making them. But then he doesn't say that at all. The sacrifices that we have to, have to offer to God are not necessary to God, but they are necessary to us. We are contingent creatures who depend on the necessity of God, not the other way around. In another sense, we're made to offer sacrifices. We are made to render worship to God. We are homo liturgicus, creatures made for worship, and worship comes through sacrifice. Why is that? Why does Augustine say both these things? He says that we are made with this desire to, quote, cleave to God and seek the good of our neighbor for the same end. And when we express this natural desire for God, our visible sacrifices are to be understood as a sign of an invisible sacrifice. The sacrifice of our hearts, he says, bruised and humbled in the sorrow of confessing our sins, can be exchanged for the true sacrifice, the mercy of God. The body and soul can both become sacrifices, Augustine says, whenever they, quote, die to the world and live for God. That would have been his answer when I asked you what sacrifices mean. He would have raised his hand and said, whenever you die to the world and live for God citing Paul's, Romans to the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. The body can become a sacrifice if it is disciplined by temperance, or indeed when we do anything that turns itself away from service to sin and towards service to God. Even more so, the soul becomes, can become a sacrifice when it gives up the formation offered by worldly desires. And allows itself to be reformed by submission to God, and in so doing being ordered to that which is perfect and good, the soul, quote, becoming what it has received from his beauty. In this way, Augustine wants to say true sacrifices are those acts which are ordered to the love of God. And when Christians gather to render this sacrifice communally, They do so through, quote, the sacrifice which the church continually celebrates in the sacrament of the altar, a sacrament well known to the faithful where it is shown to the church that she herself is offered in the offering she presents to God. This is mystagogical teaching, and Augustine's careful not to go into too much detail for the uninitiated. But here we can see the first place in which Augustine draws the Roman reader back into the church to see that Christians, like those Roman civic heroes, are also making sacrifices on behalf of the city, the city of God. Their sacrifices are well-ordered, and in the Eucharist, these sacrifices are being transfigured and transformed into Christ's sacrifice. As I said to my 11-year-old son the other day, All we do is bring him a little piece of bread and some wine and he returns by giving us himself. Extraordinary exchange. As true God and true man, Christ is a mediator who can both be the true sacrifice to which all of our sacrifices truly point and receive our sacrifices in such a way as to make the offering perfect before God in a way that we cannot. As Augustine puts it, quote, this, uh, he is both the sacri- he, sorry. He is both the priest. Um, oh, that quote got cut off. Oh well, he says something there, very important, which is cut off in my text. Okay, but you get the point um, that Augustine culminates his argument in Book Ten by lifting up this connection between Christ as the true sacrifice in uh, the Eucharistic sacrifice. All right, third act, third act, and here I turn to the end uh, of the City of God, a little bit on book 18, but mostly on book 22, which I call life conformed to the Eucharistic sacrifice. At the end of the City of God, Augustine writes, quote, the mortal course of the two cities, and here we'll bring the two cities back in, the mortal course, of the two cities, the heavenly and the earthly, are intermingled from beginning to end. One of them, the earthly, has created for herself from any source she pleased, even out of men, false gods to worship with sacrifice, but is herself created. um, Sorry. False gods to, to worship with sacrifice. The other city, a heavenly pilgrim on earth, does not create false gods, but is herself created by the true God, whose sacrifice she is herself. Say that again. The other, a heavenly pilgrim on earth, does not create false gods, but is herself created by the true God, is constituted by God, whose sacrifice she is herself. She, the church, becomes a sacrifice. Why does Augustine say that the heavenly city on pilgrimage, the church, is herself? sacrifice. What do you think? We might expect him to say after his earlier treatment in book 10 that Christ was the true and perfect sacrifice, but recall that he also stressed how we become partakers of Christ's sacrifice. The eternal benefits of the redemption of Christ's sacrifice are communicated directly to us directly to us in the Eucharistic sacrifice. And Augustine even suggests that we may receive this bodily in the sacraments as well as in our hearts, which I think is this worship of the heart inclining to Eucharistic adoration as well, but that's to read in, into Augustine a bit. But he attends to the way in which we, uh, are the, the Eucharistic sacrifice is communicated to us body and soul This is an extremely important question for understanding our themes. For St. Paul, it is clear that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, quote, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your worship, your logicae latria, the logic of your worship. Augustine is struck by this verse and especially its connection to the subsequent verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Augustine sees an intimate connection between the body as a living sacrifice in verse 1 and in in Paul's letter to the Romans uh, 12 1 and the reformation of the soul in verse 2, 12-2, according to the form of, quote, the fire of love, which he takes as an image. The fire of love is an image of the sacrifice of Christ. Here's the fire of love descending, fire of love communicating electrically something to your being, body and soul that the Eucharistic sacrifice communicates this fire of love into your being. And he takes this as an image of what we have received from his beauty. It should be evident from this that Augustine has a strongly participationist understanding of Christ's sacrifice. This being so, Augustine writes, it immediately follows that the whole redeemed community, that is to say, the congregation and fellowship of the saints, uh, heaven and earth, is offered to God as a universal sacrifice through the great priest, capital P, priest, who offered himself in his suffering for us so that we might be the body of so great a head under the form of a servant." To complete the thought upon Romans 12, Augustine makes explicit the relationship between Christ's sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christians, and the Eucharist. He writes, this is the sacrifice of Christians, who are many making up one body in Christ, This is the sacrifice which the church continually celebrates in the sacrament of the altar, a sacrament well known to the faithful where it is shown to the church that she herself is offered in the offering which she presents to God. Becoming acceptable to God because of what it has received from his beauty, it seems clear, is bound up with becoming partakers of the divine nature, which has been revealed to us in Christ's Logicae Latria. That is a different kind of worship than that offered by the pagans, since he quite explicitly contrasts this kind of worship, the worship of Christ, with the kind of worship demanded by this age. In Augustine's view, it is clearly fitting to see this at the heart of the two cities narrative, sacrifice in the city. After all, the connections already in Paul, who opens his letters to the Romans by rebuking those who exchange true worship of God for unnatural worship of the creature? We see that today, too. Those who exchange true worship of God for unnatural worship of the creature and exchange natural relations for unnatural. Romans 1.26. Thus, at the heart of Augustine's narrative concerning the contrast of the two cities is really a Pauline narrative about contrasting forms of worship, contrasting forms of sacrifice, but only one being a true and perfect Latria, the divine form which is worshiped rightly and thus can be habituated in Christians as living sacrifices. If we look at the end of City of God 18, we will find Augustine reflecting at length on the martyrs, which he then reflects again on at length in book 22, and that's because sacrifice is not only vertically directed towards Christ, but the flow of ablative life, that electricity, that flow of divine love comes into the Christian life, flows into human beings. He has observed this dynamic before, and I think it's a dynamic he even is observing in book one of the city where he contrasts the honor suicides of Roman stoicism with the behavior of Christian women or where he chides pagans who worship false gods, yet received refuge in Christ's church, and especially in the shrines of his martyrs. Augustine's consistently interested in situating the gospel, quote, amid terrible persecutions and the manifold tortures and deaths of martyrs, precisely because he thinks that the church is herself the sacrifice of Christ, which is at the heart of martyrdom. It is always the participationist account of sacrifice that shapes his view of the martyr and indeed the saint. He suffered, he died, he rose again, Augustine writes, showing by his suffering what we ought to undergo for the cause of truth. He showed us by his suffering what we ought to undergo for the cause of truth. End quote. It's tempting to think that martyrs are made by kings, or emperors, or even heretics. Instead, martyrs, Augustine says, are made by God. They are the ones who have received perfectly the beauty of the divine form. The martyrs are martyrs, though also for the sake of their enemies. They witness to Christ for those among the church's enemies who will turn to Christ and be saved. For Augustine, the blood of the martyrs speaks to kings throughout history, quote, by whose laws the church was being devastated. So the martyr is not simply a sacrifice, but also the martyr is an evangelist, a witness, one whose body and spirit have become the very presence of the logicae latria of Christ. It is hardly a wonder that so many martyrdoms in the early church were described then in Eucharistic terms. Augustine sees the martyr not only as an evangelist, as the presence of Christ, but the martyr is a witness to social and political truth as well, hoping that the blood of the martyrs might awaken even persecuting kings and cultures to the true king of the ages, whose name, quote, they had ruthlessly tried to remove from the earth. Almost done. Augustine observed and predicted in City Uh, City of God, book 18, that as the world became Christian, the devil would increasingly stir up heretics to oppose Christian doctrine, and these heretics could torment the souls of the devout in in ways uh, which far exceed the harm that kings could bring to the body. All enemies of the church, though, Augustine says, can train the Christian. If the enemies have the power to do bodily harm, as he thinks kings do, then they train the church in patient endurance. If the enemies have distorted the truth of the Christian faith with perverse notions and persecute the heart, this is what he thinks heretics do, then they train her in wisdom, opportunities to be properly formed, to order oneself to the true and perfect sacrifice. Remarkably, Augustine says that neither kind of enemy that you will ever face can really harm you as a Christian or harm the church. There is not a hint of apocalypticism in Augustine's commendation of persecution, of the embrace of persecution or martyrdom. There's something pervasively oblative about Augustine's understanding. The martyr is really an icon of how the Christian should manifest this flow, this fire of love descending into our life through the Eucharistic sacrifice, through Christ's sacrifice. Whether there's threat of physical harm or threat of some soft despotism, Augustine is confident that Christians have the resource. They have the fire of love. Augustine writes that while an end to martyrdom might bring consolation, especially to the weak, the truth is unalterable. All who want to live a devout life in Christ will suffer persecution. Just a fact, Augustine thinks. Even in times of tranquility, even when those outside the pilgrim city do not rage, there is still going to be invisible forms of persecution, Augustine says, that are no less real for being invisible. The Christian will never escape those, quote, who by their unprincipled behavior torment the feelings of those who live devout lives. If not in their bodies, Christians will still suffer this persecution, he says, in their hearts. It's at this point, um, and here I'm going to advance a little bit, that Augustine continually counsels Christians not to be afraid, counsels Christians not to be grieved by persecution, but to be joyful and devout, to love one's enemies all the more to love one's neighbors as oneself. There's an enormous hope and confidence that comes from this fire of love that's descended, especially when he discusses the martyrs in book 22. It's how he closes out his argument with the Romans, with Christian martyrs. The Romans claim that Christians are weak. They claim that they need to resist Christ. This is what the Romans are claiming. Let's resist Christ. Let's resist these Christians. And return to pagan virtues. This is how Rome will endure. Augustine's response is, no. It's the martyrs who endure the bitter enmity and savage cruelty of the world, he writes. They overcame the world not by resisting, but by dying. Where the pagans offer sacrifice to their gods, Augustine's keen to emphasize that Christians do not make sacrifices to martyrs but that the martyrs have become partakers of Christ's sacrifice. And he associates how the shrines of the martyrs is where you would celebrate the uh, sacrament of the altar, where there were these shrines uh, to to different martyrs. He, He writes, We do not in those shrines raise altars on which to sacrifice to the martyrs, but to the one God, who is the martyr's God and ours and at this sacrifice the martyrs are named in their own place and in the appointed order as men of God who have be- who have overcome the world in the confession of his name. Indeed, the sacrifice itself is the body of Christ." Um, here again, Augustine stresses that the martyr has been raised up in conformity to Christ. Um, since Christian martyrdom is evidence of a life that's been wholly conformed to Christ's sacrifice, this is what he wants to hold up. The miracles that are associated with martyrs are themselves nothing other than, quote, the faith which proclaims that Christ rose in the flesh and ascended into heaven with the flesh. Augustine once told his catechumens, as they looked upon the Eucharist for the first time, become what you are. In the martyr, Augustine sees reality under cover of sacrament revealed in the flesh. The martyr is, in a sense, this icon of what all Christian life is to be conformed to, namely the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.